0: Hello and welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Late last year, the states of New York and Illinois moved to subsidize nuclear power plants within their borders in efforts to keep the plants economically viable and in operation. The states deemed that the nuclear plants were important to their goal of limiting carbon dioxide emissions, a cause of global warming. The nuclear plants generate electricity without producing greenhouse gases. Yet the plants in question, three in New York and two in Illinois, produced electricity that was too expensive to compete in wholesale electricity markets. The plants had become a financial liability for their operator, the Chicago-based electric company Exelon, which, more recently, announced its intention to close the Three Mile Island nuclear plant in Pennsylvania. On today's podcast, we'll look at the expanding debate over nuclear power subsidies and explore the root of nuclear's financial woes. We'll also look at the potential for subsidies to undermine competitive electricity markets, where coal, natural gas, and renewable generation also compete. Our guests are Christina Simeon, who is Director of Policy and External Affairs at the Climate Center, and David Cherney, an energy industry advisor in the energy and utilities practice at PA Consulting Group. Christina and David, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Andy. Thanks for having us.
2: Hi, glad to, glad to be here.
0: Before coming to the Climate Center, Christina was director of the Penn Future Energy Center for Enterprise and Environment. She also worked for the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection and was policy director at the Alliance for Climate Protection. David's work at PA Consulting Group spans public policy analysis, energy infrastructure investment, and utility strategy. He has also worked as an adjunct professor in public policy at the University of Denver's Joseph Corbel School of International Studies and as a teaching fellow at Yale University. So to get this complicated topic on the road, um, Christine, let's start out with this question. Nuclear power was once viewed as cheap power. Now it's expensive. What has changed in terms of nuclear's economics and its role within the electricity system?
1: Okay, well, let's start with a little bit of history first. Uh, It's important to understand that most existing nuclear power plants were built between 1968 and 1990 in an effort to diversify uh, our electricity resource portfolio. These plants were expensive to build, but once they were up and operating, they could provide power at a relatively low cost. Uh, At the time, electricity generation in the United States was built using electricity ratepayer funds through a sort of state-controlled method of central planning. This was basically called the regulated um, generation model. In the late 1990s, states started to move towards competitive markets to build and run electricity generation because they were concerned that the regulated model uh, was cost-inefficient. Under the regulated generation model, units are basically guaranteed to recoup their costs plus a rate of return. In competitive markets, it's a little bit more risky because units have to compete against one another uh, on cost and operational performance in order to secure obligations to run. Uh, So moving to competitive markets is one change. The next big change is also... Uh, shale-based gas, which has led to abundant supplies of low-cost gas. Most of the economically challenged nuclear plants operate in competitive markets where natural gas units typically determine the market price because they operate on the margin. As natural gas commodity prices have reduced, so have market prices. Um, Since demand has been relatively flat, this means basically that there's a smaller pool of revenue in the market to distribute a to the generators uh, that are operating and therefore compensating those units in the market. So as revenues have decreased, uh, we've gotten to the the third issue, which is high costs for these nuclear units. These market revenues are decreasing, but the plants have to make expensive investments on an ongoing basis, for example, to renew their operating licenses or maintain operational performance, and to meet regulatory com- uh, compliance. Um, for example, there were new regulatory requirements put in place after lessons learned in response to uh, the Japan's nuclear accident in Fukushima.
0: Looking at this, New York and Illinois uh, decided to support nuclear plants with subsidies in 2016. Dave, can you give us a bit more detail here on how the plants are specifically being supported?
2: Absolutely. And so, both New York and Illinois have have chosen to support these nuclear facilities by compensating them for what we call their zero-emission benefits. And so we are not paying these facilities for their energy or their capacity under these these subsidy programs. Rather, we're focused on the carbon-free benefits that nuclear generation provides those states. This conceptually is very similar to how we compensate renewable generation in states that have subsidies such as renewable portfolio standards, where we subsidize these renewable generators for their renewable attributes. However, there's really a key difference between the nuclear example and the renewable example um, more broadly, and that is when we think about renewable portfolio standards for wind and solar, there's quite a bit of wind and solar generators in the market, and that is to say there's a fair bit of competition um, between solar, wind, other forms of renewable generation that allows these renewable, if you will, subsidies, this additional revenue stream associated with renewable attributes, to be determined by the competitive market. However, in the case of the nuclear industry, there are very few nuclear power plants, and they are owned by an even smaller set of owners. And so there's really not enough competition to effectively set the price for these zero-emission attributes. And so, what both New York and Illinois have done is found a way to synthetically create a price for these zero-emission attributes absent of a a competitive market. And and they've done this by tagging the price of, of, of carbon to the social cost of carbon developed under the Obama administration, and then subtracting out what you can broadly think of as the average energy price earnings and average capacity price earnings. By nuclear generators to take out those forms of compensation, and what is left is um, theoretically the value associated with with zero emission benefits.
0: So, so this is also taking place in other states as well. Uh, I know Ohio has talked about um, subsidies in these plants. I think that's been put on hold. New Jersey, Connecticut, uh, is the situation the same in those states as well?
2: So, it's, I'd say it's. it's similar in those states. So Ohio, while it's currently on hold, which also happened in Illinois, so legislation tends to bounce back and, and, and forth, um, is following a very similar model to Illinois and, um, and New York. New Jersey, however, is taking a, a slightly different tactic in their current form of, of the, the legislation, which is still being being developed, and that's to study this issue. So rather than go to a direct subsidy, so they they are studying whether these subsidies will be necessary within the the state. And Connecticut has gone through a few different iterations, um, some similar to Illinois and New York and and some quite different.
0: Now, also, most recently uh, here in Pennsylvania, uh, there's the Three Mile Island nuclear power plant, which became infamous in the late 1970s when there was a new uh, a, a near meltdown at that plant. Um, the owner of that plant, also Exelon, has announced recently that it plans to close that plant about 15 years early. Uh, Christina, how is this all playing out here in Pennsylvania?
1: So like you said, in, in May, the owner of Three Mile Island, Exelon, announced it would retire um, Three Mile Island in September of 2019. Um, It's a premature retirement before its operation license expires. uh, Because the plant has continuously lost money and also failed to win reliability resource obligations in these competitive capacity markets. Um, One of the reasons TMI is so challenged is because it only has one reactor, so it's generating Less power, less megawatts, but it still has those relatively high costs. So, among most nuclear plants that have two reactors, it is particularly challenged. So, the
0: economics are really bad for Three right. Mile so Island. Okay. It is
1: um, less competitive than mm-hmm. some of the other nuclear units. So, there hasn't been legislation proposed yet. Exelon has expressed strong interest to work with Pennsylvania's General Assembly to. Establish policies that would create new revenue streams uh, to keep TMI viable. Again, the discussions are in the early stage. Nothing's been proposed. But there's been general talk about maybe amending the state's alternative energy portfolio standard to include nuclear power or developing some sort of zero emissions credit, like Dave talked about um, in New York or Illinois There has been a nuclear caucus established of interested legislators who have held hearings on the topic. There's also um, an advocacy group of local government, labor and business leaders in and around the TMI area that has been established to that are advocating to support the plant. However, unlike Illinois and New York, Pennsylvania has a very strong natural gas industry uh, that would be harmed by these subsidies. The, in the gas industry, along with consumer interests like AARP and um, manufacturing groups, have formed an advocacy effort to oppose these subsidies in Pennsylvania. Um, so it's really it's really unclear that politics in Pennsylvania are different than New York and Illinois. Uh, so we'll see what happens.
0: It's interesting you you brought up that point that we have here in Pennsylvania a very strong natural gas industry that does not. Exist at this point in in New York and in Illinois. You also mentioned that in in the state legislature here in Pennsylvania, there's a group of uh, representatives who are looking at this issue. Also, there's external groups. What are the arguments that both sides are are uh, using, either for or against the bailouts for nuclear power plants here in Pennsylvania?
1: Well, the nuclear industry argues that competitive markets do not currently compensate their units for the value of zero carbon power. Um, And rather than being subsidized, they argue that they're seeking to address this market failure. Um, Exelon notes that TMI employs over 675 workers. Um, Another 1,500 union employees, every time they refuel the reactor, it it pays over a million dollars annually in property taxes and contributes charitably to the community. Uh, These jobs and economic benefits and zero carbon power would be lost if the plant closes. And unlike other plants like coal or gas plants, once the plant closes because of Um, Nuclear Regulatory Commission regulations. It can't reopen again, at least not how the regulations are currently stated. Um, So once it's gone, it's gone forever. On the other hand, the gas industry believes that the competitive markets are working well, um, that um, these markets have attracted significant investments in new resources while keeping new reliability resources while keeping costs low for consumers. They argue that the subsidies would distort competitive markets by further suppressing prices um, and that these subsidies would un- would unfairly favor uneconomic competitors at the expense of competitive resources, which in this area is really dominated by natural gas. Um, consumer advocates also point out that Pennsylvania has moved away from a ratepayer-funded generation model when they passed the Restructuring Act back in the late 1990s, um, and that these nuclear units were made whole through stranded cost recovery payments. Uh, And they, they argue that the industry can't pick whichever is highest at any given time, either the regulated model or the competitive model. Based, you know, based on what is the highest level of compensation.
0: Uh, let, me, let me ask you both uh, if we could just take a step back a moment here. Obviously, the competitive markets are very important in this whole context of what's going on. wonder if you could just give us a bit of insight uh, for those listeners who may not have that much background on this, how the electricity markets work and specifically how that electricity market, the competitive electricity market has, has really been the root of this problem here. Or one of the one of them.
1: so I guess in in very simple terms, uh, there's two main markets that are when we talk about the wholesale markets we talk about the energy market, which basically dispatches resources on a day to day basis uh, to provide electricity in real time um, based on whatever cost whatever resource costs the least. Uh, Then there's a there's another market, the capacity market, which seeks to uh, attract investment into resources, electricity supply resources um, to ensure that we have enough supply to meet our reliability requirements, Uh, whereas the. Energy market is in that kind of real time, more happening day to day. The capacity market has auctions to secure resources for three years into the future, so that if we ever got into a situation where there wasn't enough supply, there would be enough time to build new supply when when needed. Um, generators operating in the market need revenue streams from both of those markets to make them whole. With Natural gas, uh, low-cost shale-based natural gas, what we're seeing is kind of two factors that are impacting both the energy market and the the capacity market. Low-priced natural gas has brought down the clearing price in the energy market, meaning that all the generators in the market are bringing in less revenues in that energy market. At the same time, Natural gas combined cycle resources, the technology has gotten so efficient and so cost-effective to build that these resources are also the most competitive things to build. They're cheaper, quicker to build, very highly efficient, will operate at very high levels. Um, So we're seeing a ton of investment in new natural gas capacity that is crowding out some of the existing coal and nuclear resources. So it's a little bit of a double whammy. You see low electricity, low energy market prices and low capacity market prices as well.
2: To, to add on to what Christina was saying, which is absolutely right, I think it's also important to take a step back and realize that there's not just one energy market and one capacity market across the United States. Rather, you can divide up the states into multiple electricity regions, and there is some debate in in terms of how many electricity regions there technically are. I tend to think there's around 15, but when we're thinking about nuclear subsidies, we're really talking about three distinct regions. One is the, the PJM region, which encapsulates 13 states, including Illinois and Pennsylvania, PJM, from when it was founded initially, was Pennsylvania, New Jersey, which is the J in Maryland. Then we have the New York um, market, um, which is within one state. And then we have the rest of New England, um, ISO New England, as it's called. And each of those different markets have different energy markets. They have their own capacity market, and they're wrestling with these issues in, in slightly different ways.
0: So, cutting to the chase here, who bears the cost of these subsidies?
2: Well, at the end of the day, in, in Illinois and in New York, it, it's, it's the rate payer. So, it, it, it's customers within those states have to pay the costs of these, these subsidies. Each state has, has slightly different mechanisms for how this will occur, um, but at the end of the day, it's the customer.
0: And those are pretty significant. I've seen uh, figures for New York. I think it's on the order of two hundred thirty-five million dollars a year. I think Illinois is about double that. Does that sound about right?
2: It, it's in the ballpark. I think Illinois is in, in uh, the two hundred. I think it's capped at like two hundred thirty-four, two hundred thirty-five million dollars per per year.
0: Uh, you, you know, Christina, one of the arguments against subsidies is that they'll distort electricity markets. I, is that true? And is that specific just to nuclear subsidies?
1: Well, it, it's a good question because I think it's important to understand that all energy resources are subsidized. And this has historically been because energy is important to citizens and the economy. And there have been long-standing efforts to lower the cost of energy and diversify our energy resources as a sort of hedging mechanism. Um, as a result, some subsidies for newer resources like renewables are very transparent um, in the form of Market supply mandates by the state or federal tax credits. Other subsidies are kind of long standing and a little less transparent. For example, tax exemptions or special treatment for natural gas, oil, or coal extraction, where these fuel costs represent 70 to 80 percent of the operating costs for fossil fuel fired power plants. Um, or for the nuclear industry, these the federal uh, liability insurance limits or assumption of uh, custody and disposal of spent fuel waste. Uh, so it's really important to understand that subsidies are everywhere in these markets. And while they've always existed, the recent focus on subsidies kind of come down to two issues. One, uh, where is the line between state rights to establish policies like subsidies and federal jurisdiction. And two, how will a patchwork of state subsidy policies to support significant volumes of power represented by these nuclear power resources where you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of megawatts, uh, how will that impact the competitive markets?
0: So that's really the new issue that these are really big resources. They have the uh, ability to really impact the market by their presence and through their subsidy, mm-hmm. more than a, a wind or a solar plant might.
1: Correct. And now we're seeing the patchwork of state approaches, which can be distortionary in these regional competitive markets.
0: Getting past the economics here for a moment, there's a major legal issue here pitting the states against the federal government with respect to these subsidies. Namely, are states interfering with electricity markets by offering these subsidies, when these markets are ultimately regulated by the federal government,
2: so this is a really interesting question. So it's of course these subsidies are interfering with wholesale markets. There's no question about that. But sort of what is of question is whether or not that interference is permissible, or whether or not that interference is illegal. And and so. You know, when we think about the nuclear subsidies, I think I think there's two sort of past precedents that we need to think about, and opponents and proponents of these forms of nuclear compensation are sort of taking sides on these these two issues. And, and the first is, if we think about renewable compensation, so I talk about renewable portfolio standards that similarly compensate wind and solar generation for their renewable attributes And what what FERC and what the courts have held is that renewable attributes is a separate and distinct market from energy and capacity, so that essentially this form of compensation, while it does impact wholesale prices, both in energy and capacity, at at the end of the day, it's a separate and distinct market created by the states. And the states have jurisdiction, and it's not within FERC's jurisdiction, so it's permissible to have these types of markets, even though there is some sort of interference. Um, This is in contrast to a recent Supreme Court ruling known as Hughes versus Talon. And in that case, so if we go back to, to some of the facts, Maryland was very concerned, the state of Maryland was very concerned that not enough new generation was being built within the state, and this potentially would have negative reliability consequences for the state of Maryland. So Maryland went outside of the wholesale market of PJM and held a competitive solicitation um, process for new generation. And a company called Competitive Power Ventures won this solicitation and was awarded a contract to build a new power plant called St. Charles Energy Center. And this type of contract that Maryland awarded St. Charles was is what is known as a contract for the differences. And so what Maryland was doing was saying, look, St. Charles, you're going to participate in the wholesale energy and capacity market. And if you fall short on the amount of money you need to be made whole, we're going to pay you for the differences. And so they were guaranteeing them essentially a certain um, level of income. And the Supreme Court ended up ruling in this case that that was an illegal contract because the federal government, through FERC, has jurisdiction over energy capacity sales. And, and, and so those contracts were, were – were, that contract was, was tossed aside. Um, and so those opposed to the zero emission credit programs rely on this ruling saying – that the zero emission credit programs are essentially contracts for the differences to guarantee nuclear generators a certain level of income to make sure they, they stay within the market. And then this is in contrast to those in favor of those programs who are saying, you know, these really are not contracts for the differences. They are contracts for zero emission benefits, which are a separate and distinct market created by the states um, and this falls outside of the jurisdiction of energy and capacity markets. So it falls outside of wholesale markets, and it's permissible to have this type of, of market.
0: So what might we see ultimately uh, with nuclear?
2: So so there's litiga- litigation both in, in New York and Illinois. and It's very clear that whichever side loses is, is going to uh, appeal their um, – appeal the ruling. And and so this this ultimately will probably end up at at the Supreme Court, and that's because there has been sort of a blurring of the lines between state and federal control in the energy industry, not just on the nuclear issue, but on a number of different um, issues due to changing market structure, due to disruptive technologies. And so the concept of what can state control and what can the federal government control is an increasingly important issue in the energy industry. And it, it's likely going to be a topic that the, the court will want to comment on.
0: Okay, David, let me ask you one more question here, uh, carrying on with that. If nuclear remains, what happens to the demand for renewables, natural gas, et cetera? Will the markets adapt or will they collapse?
2: So I, I think that the markets will absolutely adapt. There, there, there's we, we have very robust wholesale markets across the United States. Um, this is not enough to, to cause these markets to collapse. However, there will be winners and losers, um, you know, with, with these policies. Somebody's going to be economically harmed, and somebody's going to be economically benefited by these, these policies, and, and so where that compensation is going will be reshuffled, but at the, the end of the day, the, the markets are robust, and they're going to keep moving forward. And, I, I, you know, just to circle back to one of your points there, too, and the demand for renewables, because I think that's a really important topic when we're talking about this. A lot of demand specifically for renewable generation is driven by those renewable portfolio standards or demand um, by corporate appetite for, for renewable um, electricity. And so at the end of the day, renewable demand is likely not going to be impacted Um buy these nuclear subsidies. However, the price through the energy and capacity markets that renewable generators earn may be depressed.
0: Christina, you know, some would argue that we won't have enough electricity if the nuclear plants are closed and that we need those plants to ensure reliable supply of electricity. Um, so if the nuclear plants close, what happens to, uh, to reliability?
1: So I think if... All nuclear plants close, then yes, we would have a reliability crisis. But nobody is really talking about that the entire nuclear sector shutting down. We're talking about specific plants in specific areas that are um, less economically competitive. Uh, this issue has been brought up recently. The Department of Energy Secretary Perry uh, issued a memo back in May. Um, that directed the agency to develop a re- reliability report um, and policy recommendations. The that that report and recommendations will probably be live by the time this, or will probably be released by the time this podcast is live. Um, the, con- the concern with the memo and the study that's underway is that um, it was very biased towards protecting baseload nuclear and coal power plants, asserting that they're needed f- for reliability. Um, It seemed hostile towards renewables and regulations uh, and failed to acknowledge the role of natural gas in driving these baseload retirements. Uh, In addition, Secretary Perry made some public comments supporting the idea of overriding states' rights on energy policy. Um, and while generally people recognize that DOE doesn't have authority over uh, power markets or policy, the administration is in the process of appointing four new members to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, that, or FERC, that does have um, jurisdiction over these matters. Um, and there's a concern that this is going to establish um, the administration's uh, priorities with respect to electricity markets. So... With respect to reliability, uh, baseload resources operate continuously. They can't easily turn on or off. It makes them very dependable but also inflexible. Gas resources can easily ramp up or down, making them very flexible and well-suited to complement renewable resources that are only available when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing. So there's a lot of um, disagreements about what is needed for future reliability. In general, these markets that we've been talking about, um, other than I think ISO New England and the Northeast, have very high reserve margins, which means they have excess capacity for purposes of reliability. Um, Some argue that baseload is needed. Uh, Others argue that these flexible gas resources are really what the future of the grid is going to look like in addition to more energy storage, renewable energy, and demand-side resources, for example, asking consumers or paying consumers to reduce their power usage when uh, demand is high. So I think there's a concern about the credibility and the, you know, whether this report will really look at these issues from an unbiased manner, and it's too hard to tell. Um, but we'll have those uh, results pretty soon.
0: As you said, if all these resources went away, we'd have a problem. If we're talking about one or two or three or a handful here, the electricity markets would adapt to that and be OK.
1: Yes. Now, I, I would caveat that with you know adding on to the question you just talked that, that David remarked to um, about if nuclear remains or subsidized plants remain, what happens to markets? Do they adapt or will they collapse? There is a a legitimate concern that if too many of these subsidized resources remain in the market and the market isn't somehow modified to mitigate or accommodate the effects of these subsidized resources, that we're already seeing a baseline of low energy prices and low capacity prices. These subsidized resources would further suppress these capacity prices, pushing off resources that would otherwise be economic. And and by further reducing those prices, the concern is that the private – those private investments or, or public investments um, – would no longer be attracted to investing in resources within those markets because the prices would be insufficient to reach the payback period for those resources. So if that is a reality and nobody knows, um, that would be a real concern about the ability for these markets to withstand this kind of intervention.
0: So if the, if the nuclear power plants are subsidized, the price of the capacity in, in the uh, markets goes down and people don't make the investments potentially in wind, solar, or even natural gas.
2: There's, there's two aspects of that, too. So, so yes, it, it potentially will have downward pressure on energy and capacity markets. But we also have to remember that um, these resources are currently within the market right now. So a number of these nuclear generators have not what they called cleared the capacity market recently, so they're not receiving that income stream, but they are participating within the energy market. So we're we're seeing the price effects of these nuclear generators, at least on the energy side. However, from the perspective of other competitive generators, if these units were to retire, it would not just, you know, keeping the market would not just suppress prices, but it would actually increase prices by taking them out of the market. So capacity prices would go up because the supply within the market would go down, and you'd see a, a similar impact on the energy side. And, and so this would afford these other competitive generators higher income streams and help encourage investment within, within these markets.
0: So that, that leads into the next question. If the nuclear plants go away, what replaces them?
2: So so at the, the end of the day, the, the competitive market, at least within PJM, New England, and, and New York, will determine that. But it is most likely going to be natural gas resources, particularly combined cycle generation. That is the, generally the most cost-effective resource, particularly to replace baseload power. So with, you know, assuming natural gas prices remain low, we will likely see the development of new natural gas generators.
0: There has been some talk in Congress lately uh, about establishing a carbon tax, uh, which would actually put a price on carbon emissions. It doesn't look like this is going to happen anytime soon, but there have been uh, murmurs. If we had a carbon tax in this country, would we even be discussing uh, this whole issue of subsidies, uh, Christina?
1: Well, I would I would say it, it depends. And it really, to to David's point, If these zero-carbon plants, uh, nuclear plants, retire, we're going to be replacing it with natural gas, and that will increase carbon emissions, and that's a big concern. Um, The thought with carbon tax or some kind of national price on carbon is that it wouldn't have the same kind of distortionary effects that a patchwork of state-based subsidies would have on these regional competitive markets. It would be a more elegant solution as well, because it lacks this uh, distortionary um, outcomes. So, again, putting a sector wide price on carbon, where all the units, not just some units, but all the units compete based on their emissions, again would be it would be a more elegant way to address this issue. I think, though, one of the challenges what's the right price? Because a price that's too low won't necessarily help. The resources. Uh, if it's a price that's too high, it'll unnecessarily impact the consumer. So I think the mechanism is much better, but the price is really going to matter.
0: Dave, has anyone proposed creative solutions to keep low carbon resources like nuclear, not compromise the market, basically having your cake and eating it too?
2: So, so there have And in in particular, I'll focus on PJM, who is the operator of the wholesale markets within Illinois and and Pennsylvania. And and so PJM, the market operator, has been very vocal in its displeasure associated with nuclear subsidies and has put forth really two main proposals to address um, these types of subsidies related to nuclear generation. The first is a, a carbon pricing mechanism, so it would not be on a national scale, and it may not even be on a PJM-wide scale across the, the 13 states. Rather, states would have the ability to, to opt in and participate in some sort of carbon pricing program that would be exclusive to those states who, who bought in. So it would not be impacting generators in states outside of of, of those, those states. And, and the second is what they are calling a capacity market repricing mechanism. And so, as Christina was talking about, um, capacity is a a form of compensation that that competitive generators earn within the the market. And it's sort of a, um, you can think about it at at the most simple level, a a simple auction process where people come in and and, and bid what they would like to to earn in the market and supply. So um, utilities, at the end of the day, you can think about it are on the other side of that, that fence, and what they would do instead is have two auction, a, a two-auction process where first they would determine um, which resources would clear the auction, and then they'd have a second auction where they would remove the subsidized resources to determine what the competitive price should be, and those subsidized resources would not be receiving the full benefit of the higher uplifted price.
0: Uh, Christina, um, you know, just as we talked about this whole issue today, it's obviously very clear that uh, the states want one thing; they want these subsidized resources. At least as we've seen in New York and Illinois, the markets are fearful of these uh, of this, this strategy. Um, you've done a lot of work on the regulation deregulation of electricity markets. Could we see a situation where competitive markets? are minimized, go away, where we um, re-regulate the markets so that, you know, these preferred subsidies, at least in the eyes of the state, uh, can continue to to operate?
1: Um, I think it's a possibility. It's something that has been talked about, this this idea of re-regulation. There's not a lot of work done uh, uh, regarding what that process would look like. So I think there's been um, some talk, but I think that's where it's kind of kind of ended. There's also the option of kind of semi-regulation, where the state takes back regulation of uh, generation supply resources, but continues to rely on competitive markets for that kind of day-to-day energy market dispatch function. The other option is maintain the status quo and see what happens. Um, and then there's things that uh, David was talking about, making these small... In the, in the short term, small changes to the markets to try to accommodate or mitigate these subsidized resources, and then longer term, maybe broader redesign of the markets, um, because what we've seen is really an evolution of the markets, especially in PJM, where, which is sitting on top of these huge gas shale plays. And this has really changed the economics. Uh, And we've also seen at the same time technology evolution, where the gas resources have gotten more efficient, renewable costs have come down, storage costs are coming down. So is there an opportunity to look long-term? And also with carbon pricing, I mean, that has been something that maybe changes from administration to administration, but longer term, what are the trends going to be um, for investors internationally? Um, And when you're talking about assets that have 40 year plus lifespans, you want you want to you want to think long term. So um, I think there's a lot of a lot of ways this could play out, but this is going to be a big deal.
0: So Dave, do we have any idea how long this is going to take to play out? Are we going to get a resolution at some point?
2: I mean, I imagine we'd get a resolution at some point, but I I think this is going to be a a long-standing issue, and and it really comes back to that that issue of federalism, where, you know, what issues can states control related to their electricity future, and what does the federal government get to control? And, And so when states gave up some control in terms of competitive markets, we were really focused on having reliable and affordable policy. But states have increasingly tried to pursue other policy objectives that are legitimate besides having reliable and cheap power. Some of these are having clean energy, having resource diversity. Um, you can make an argument associated with, with jobs. And so, you know, this is one issue in a much larger, um, complicated issue. And I think it's going to take years to, years to sort
0: out. Should consumers... Be concerned about how this all plays out?
1: Well, I, th- I think they should be concerned. There are impacts to price. Prices are very low, again, in this area, PJM, because of the fact of low gas prices. Um, there's a lot of benefit to consumers. The effects of the subsidies, some argue that the subsidies will. Um, increased prices. Some argue that the subsidies will cause a price suppression effect that will further lower prices in the short term, but maybe create these longer term issues where the the markets won't attract investment. Um, And also consumers have preferences about these issues that Dave mentioned about the state's rights versus federal jurisdiction. And um, consumers may support renewable energy programs, energy efficiency programs. They may want to keep these zero-carbon resources um, operating. So I I do think it's something important for consumers to pay attention to.
2: I I absolutely agree. I I think this is something very important for for consumers to pay attention to. You know, if we take a step back again and think about the broad energy industry, one of the trends I think we've seen over the last 10 years and really ramping up over the last five years is is the concept of, of customer choice. And, and customers across the U.S., this is the case in Pennsylvania, it's the case in Illinois, it's the case in New York, are increasingly demanding greater choices about their energy future. And this is one of the, these critical choices. Um, are we going to be focused on maintaining reliable and a, affordable electricity, or are we going to be focused on other goals, such as having clean energy? And, and so this is a, a very important debate um, for those customers who are interested in, in maintaining choice and control over their energy future.
0: Today's guests have been Christina Simeon, Director of Policy and External Affairs at the Climate Center for Energy Policy, and David Cherney, an Energy Industry Advisor in the Energy and Utilities Practice at PA Consulting Group. Christina and David, thank you very much for appearing on the show.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you both. And, and thanks to our listeners for tuning into this episode of Energy Policy Now. We'd love to get your feedback on the podcast. Please let us know what you think by writing a review on iTunes or by sending an email to the Kleiman Center. Our email address is energy at upen.edu. Have a great day.